Uh, we're, at, we're at the midpoint of this series um, that we're calling Joyride. Um, this is right smack dab in the middle. It's a short book, Philippians, that we're studying. And um, I, man, I, it's one of my favorite letters, I think, of all of the letters that Paul wrote because there's so much packed in to such a short book. And uh, I don't know if you guys have enjoyed listening as much as I've enjoyed preaching it, but it's been good for me. And I, I, I think I've shared this before, but uh, I don't know any other way to preach other than just whatever God is speaking to me personally, I just share it with y'all. And so if it's, you know, I figure that if it helps me, then maybe it'll help somebody else, but I can't preach any other way. And so this has been really good because uh, God has really been uh, ministering to my own heart as, as I stand and preach to you. Um, and, and this morning, honestly, I have been looking forward to this morning, uh, the entire series, because we've come to, uh, it, to what in my mind has to be one of the most powerful or some of the most powerful verses uh, in all of Paul's letters, maybe in the entirety of the Bible. And it's almost as if up to this point that Paul has been kind of setting us up for these few verses. If you were to summarize in one word what Paul has been writing about up to this point, I think it would have to be the word attitude. I mean, everything that he's been talking about is centered around the idea of what is your attitude? Um, you know, it, it, he's been talking about here's, here's what you have to do in order to have the right attitude. You have to be, number one, you got to be filled with love. And, you know, you shouldn't do anything out of selfishness. You shouldn't be thinking only of yourself, but to the interest of others. And, and, and you should have joy even in the midst of hardship because you understand that even in your difficulty, God will work for your good. And so it's all about attitude. And as we come to chapter 2, verse 5, he really hones in on that even more and becomes even more direct. He says these words. He says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Now, the word attitude that is, uh, is the Greek word that is translated as attitude here, it's a word that it means um, thinking, it means your, your mindset, your opinion, your outlook. And, and so in other words, what, what Paul is saying is, he says, you know, your attitude ought to be like Christ Jesus, so that means you just ought to think the way that he thinks. You, you, ought, to, you ought to look at things the way that Jesus looks at things. You ought to have the same outlook in life that Jesus has. It's, it's really the same idea, we talked a little bit about this last week, but it's the same idea as Paul talks about in Romans chapter 6 when he uses the term in Christ. He, he says, you know, that what happens is, is when you give your life to Jesus, what happens is you are now in Christ. In other words, you're all like, you're, you're all folded up in him. You are in Christ. And so whatever happens to him happens to you. So when, when he died, you died. When he was buried, you were buried. When he was raised and exalted, we just sang that song about being exalted into heavenly places or seated in heavenly places. So when he was exalted, you were exalted. That's what he means by in Christ, living in Christ. Whatever happened to him happened to, happens to you. You ought to have the same attitude. Now, you, you probably heard this before, and I have no idea, um, you know, where it came from, but, but, but somebody once said, you know, that you can be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. Listen, I don't know, again, I don't know who, who came up with that, but I think if God were to hear that, he would say, what in the world are you talking about? I mean, Scripture points to the complete opposite. The, the reality is, if you are really heavenly-minded, you're going to be tremendously earthly good. Right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, uh, you know, we, we are to be heavenly minded. You see, the problem is not that we have too many people that are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. Honestly, the real problem is we have too many people who are so earthly minded that they're no heavenly good. 
This is what Paul says when he says, you know, set your heart, set your passion, set your mind, set your things, your heart on things above. Paul says in in Colossians chapter 3, that since you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. In other words, whatever is most important in heaven ought to be most important to you. Right? I mean, whatever is most important to Jesus ought to be most important to you. Whatever makes his heart beat ought to make your heart beat. Whatever he thinks about, you ought to think about. Whatever he's passionate about, you ought to be passionate about. Whatever is important to him ought to be important to you. This is what Paul means when he says, have the same attitude. He goes on, he says, he says, not only your heart, but he says, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. He says, not just your heart, just not, not just your passions, not, not just the things that are important to you in your, the way you feel. He says, but set your minds not on earthly things, but on things above. For you died, remember when, you, when he died, you died? For you died and your life is now hidden in Christ with God. In other words, remember, you're in Christ. Don't forget, you're in Christ. And so your life is now hidden with Christ. And and since you're in him, Paul says, you ought to think like him. You you ought to have the same mindset that he is. So what does he think about? Heavenly things. You know, this is why he taught us when we pray, how are we supposed to pray? On earth as it is in heaven. Because we're in Christ, what he wants us to do, our minds are on heavenly things. So what he wants us to do, even when we pray, is reach up and grab heaven and pull it down into a situation. Set your minds, your thinking on things above. The the idea is this, that Jesus' thinking ought to be reflected in our living. Yeah, Yeah, his thinking... It ought to be manifested in the way that we live our day-to-day lives. So the question is, how does Jesus think? Have you ever wondered that? I mean, as you've read through Scripture, you know, and you, you read, you know, you see different interactions that Jesus had with different individuals. Have you ever, have you ever wondered, man, I wonder, what, I wonder what Jesus was thinking here. For instance, when, when the Pharisees were always trying to trick and trap Jesus, sometimes I wonder, I wonder what he was really thinking or, or when he, he's traveling along and all of a sudden he looks up in a tree and he sees this little dude up there, Zacchaeus, you know? I wonder what he was thinking when he saw that. Or, or when he was in the garden praying. He's getting ready to face the most difficult moment of his life and he looks over and all of his best friends are asleep. I, I, I wonder what he was thinking in that moment or, or when he was stripped naked, he was beaten and whipped and hung on the cross. I wonder what were all the things that went through his mind. Well, I, I think what Paul writes next gives us some deep insight into the mind of Jesus. And let me just say this, that uh, the reason that Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives this insight is not so that we can just say, wow, that's really interesting. You know, now I know what Jesus was thinking. No. We're given this insight through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit because it's his desire That you and I, first of all, as we understand how Jesus thought that it would so impact our own minds that it would actually change the way that we think and we would begin to think like he thinks. I think that's what this is all about. It's, It's about helping us change our thinking because as a man thinks, so is he, yeah. As a man thinks, so is he, because right thinking brings around about right actions. And so Paul challenges us to think like Jesus. So how does Jesus think? Or, or, or better yet, maybe the better question is, what was Jesus like? Well, Jesus himself answers this for us in Matthew chapter 11. He says this in verse 28, very familiar passage of scripture. He says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle 
and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus says this about himself. He says, I am gentle and humble. Gentle. I, 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 think, I think gentleness sometimes gets a bad rap because I think we have the tendency to equate uh, gentle with weak. That's not at all what it means. Gentleness is strength under control. That's what gentleness is. I mean, you think about, we use that term for like horses, right? Those of you who are maybe horse people. And I mean, here you've got this massive, strong animal who is incredibly strong, but we talk about it, how it's so gentle. This is what Jesus is talking about. He says, I'm gentle and I'm humble. This is what I really want to hone in on, the, the humility of Jesus, because um, really this is what Paul is doing in Philippians chapter 2. In, in fact, what Paul does as he goes on, he says, your attitude ought to be like Jesus. And then he goes on really to talk about three ways that Jesus demonstrated his own humility. First of all, Paul talks about Jesus' humility in heaven. Again, he says in verse 5, he says, your attitude ought to be like Jesus. Now he's going to tell us what his attitude is like. He, he says, who being in very nature God. Who being in very nature God. First of all, Paul wants to make it undeniably clear who Jesus is. He says, Jesus is God. 100% God. His nature, his essence, at his core, he is totally God. He's not a sub-God. He's not a lesser God. It's not like, you know, that you've got God the Father here and you've got Jesus somewhere down here. No, Jesus is God. Co-eternal, co-existent, co-equal, co-powerful God. In fact, in Colossians chapter 1, Paul unpacks this a little bit. I want you to look at what he writes. He says that in him, in Jesus, all things were created. Now, when Paul says all things, what he means by that is all things. That means every, every mountain, every ocean, every animal, every bird, every bug, every person, all things were created by him. Things in heaven, things on earth, visible, invisible. He says whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, what he's talking about here is all the angelic beings, you know, the angels and the archangels and the cherubim and the seraphim, they were all created by Jesus. He says all things were created by him and for him. Let's jump back into Philippians chapter 2. Because Paul says, however, that being the case, that being the case, that, I mean, this is God, 100% God, co-eternal, co-existent, all the omnis, Jesus is God, that being the case, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Now, now again, understand that Jesus is not saying, or, God, or Paul is not saying that Jesus is not equal to God the Father, that he just couldn't grasp equality with God the Father. That's not what he's saying. What he's talking about here is Jesus' attitude. He, he's, he's talking about the fact that, you know, Jesus didn't run around heaven saying to the Father, well, you know, since I'm equal to you, you're not the boss of me and you can't tell me what to do. I mean, you want to save them so bad, you go. You want to save them so bad, you go. You, you, you get stripped naked. You, you get mistreated. You get spit on. You get hung on a cross. No. That, that wasn't Jesus' attitude. He, he, his, his, his attitude was that of he emptied himself. He emptied himself. And so what Paul is trying to help us understand is to have an attitude like Jesus, the attitude, it begins and it ends with humility, where life is not about your, it's not about your position, but it's more about your posture. It's, it's, it's about having an attitude where you know, you're just, you're always on the lookout for how, how can I find a way to serve God? by serving the people that he loves. 
How can, I, how can I serve God by serving people? You see, when we have an attitude like Jesus, we're not worried about, you know, well, should I serve them or should they be serving me? You know, that's, that's not even on the radar screen. If you remember, that was the issue that the disciples dealt with at the Last Supper. <laughs> You see, according to Jewish tradition, the person who, who held the lowest position, like the low guy on the podium toll, it was his job to wash everybody else's feet. And if you remember, they enter in and nobody's washing anybody's feet. Why? Because they were busy arguing about who's the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. I'm going to be the one. You know, who's going to be the one that sits next to him when he's elevated into his kingdom? And so consequently, nobody rushes to get the bowl and the towel. There's not a fight over that. Now listen, there's no argument that Jesus was the greatest, right? Are we all on the same page on that? Good, good thing. Jesus was the greatest, and yet what's he do? Don't, don't forget, I mean, I, I, think we, I don't think we fully can wrap our brains around this, but he's God. He's he's the one who was and is and is to come. He's the one who spoke a word. I mean, think about that. Jesus, in, in creation, he spoke a word and boom, the Rocky Mountains come into existence. He speaks a word and boom, the Pacific Ocean. Jesus, he, he's the one who in, in Psalms, it says that he breathed the stars into existence. Can you imagine that? And there's the sun. Man, he's God. And this, this, this star-breathing God, he could have been like, wait a second, boys, I'm going to end this whole who's the greatest debate. But instead of doing that, He sets aside his position, and instead he takes the posture of a servant. I mean, they're they're arguing, you know, and without a word, Jesus, in humility, the king of the universe, grabs a bowl and fills it with water, wraps a towel around his waist, he gets down on his hands and knees, and he begins to go around the table washing their dirty, stinky feet. Come on, you talk about humility. And listen, we talked about this last week, that when we talk about humility, humility is not some sort of, you know, super spiritual inferiority complex. No. Humility isn't thinking less of yourself. Humility is simply thinking about yourself less. Humility says, you know what, I'm not going to get all wrapped up in, you know, who's above me or who's below me. I'm not going to worry about whether I get the credit or don't get the credit. All I'm worried about is the fact that there are people who need to be served. And so for the glory of God the Father, I'm going to do it. You see, that's thinking like Jesus. The second area of humility that we see demonstrated in Jesus, Paul talks about not just his humility in heaven, he talks about his humility in becoming a man. I want you to look at verse 7. It says, but he made himself nothing. Being in very nature God, he made himself nothing. One translation says it like this, he just simply emptied himself. This is one of the, the mystery verses that are contained in Scripture. Um, because what it means is that without, without compromising or forfooting in any way his godness, Jesus emptied himself of his godness. I mean, he remained 100% God, but at the same time, he became 100% man. You say, well, how can he be both? I mean, the math does not work, right? I don't know. I don't know. He, he, he was. It's a mystery. He, his ways are higher than our ways. And there are some things that we're just not going to understand until we get to heaven and we get a heavenly mind. All I know is that the Bible says that he was 100% God, he was 100% man, and he emptied himself. 
I think maybe the best way we can understand this is that Jesus, still being God, he set aside all of his rights and privileges as God. I mean, think about this. Again, he's the, he's the God of the universe. And in John chapter 1, it says that he came to his own things. In other words, when Jesus came to earth, and, and, and maybe he's walking along the Sea of Galilee, and he looks out over the Sea of Galilee, and his, in his own mind, he's like, yep, that's exactly how I created it. Or, 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 or maybe, you know, at night, he's sitting around a campfire with his disciples, and they've all dozed off, and he looks up into the heavens, and he sees all the stars, and he says, oh, man, I remember it was just like yesterday. And it was because uh, the Bible says that with the Lord, uh, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. And so he says, man, it just seems like yesterday that I, and there were the stars. He, He came to his own things, man. When he was walking down the road and he comes across people, every single person he came across was somebody that he created. It was somebody that he knew intimately from the time that they were in their mother's womb. And he's like, he even knew the, the number of hairs on their heads. Maybe when Jesus walked by, he went like 4,286,182. Jesus knew they, he had created them. And it says that he came to his own. And his, his own things received him not. Here he is, he's God. And he set aside the rights and the privileges of God. Like what? I mean, what rights and privileges? Well, first of all, he gave up his glory and his splendor. I don't think think we fully understand what a big deal his glory and splendor is. I don't think we fully grasp how integral the glory and splendor are to Jesus being. And he sets that aside. The Bible says that the word became flesh. In other words, in other words, the glory of God covered with human flesh. I think maybe part of setting aside his glory and splendor probably has to do with something that theologians call the prostontheon. That has to do with the face-to-face encounters between God the Father and God the Son. He would have experienced this, this, this deep intimacy with the Father for eternity past. And now all of a sudden, as he takes on human form and he empties himself of all that he is, he sets aside his rights and his prerogatives. This is something that he sets aside. And you can't tell me that he missed that. He didn't miss that. I mean, he craved it. This is why scripture tells us that, that you know, he would go off by himself into lonely places to do what? To pray, because he longed to have this intimate connection with his father. And right before he's arrested, we see his heart as he prays this prayer. He, he prays, now, now, Father, glorify me in your presence. With what? The glory that I had with you before the world began. Give, give, give back to me, in other words. Give back to me that perfect union and harmony that we had when I was with you in heaven. Number two, he, he, he gave up his independent authority and power. In John 5.30, he says this. This is incredible. Jesus says, by myself, I can't do anything. Alone, I, I, I mean, Jesus is God, Right? Think about that. Jesus is 100% God. Remember, he's the star-breathing, mountain-creating, life-giving God, and that is the God who says, by myself, I can't do anything. Come on, wait a second. Read through the Gospels. I mean, look at all the miracles. There are 40 miracles listed in, in Scripture. And so, you know, what about... All of the blind eyes that he healed, or the water that he turned into wine, or, or what about Lazarus? I mean, that dude was dead, three days dead. 
And wasn't it Jesus that said the words, Lazarus, come forth, and the dead dude wasn't dead no more, and he came forth? So, so if that's not power and authority, I don't know what is. So what do you mean that he gave that up and he couldn't do anything on his own? What I mean by that is that since he was 100% God, he could have done all those things on his own, but he chose not to. He, he set his independence aside And for the 33 years that he walked on this planet as a human being, he was 100% dependent upon the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 10, Luke says this. He says that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. That's where the power came from. In other words... What, what, what Jesus did, he didn't do because he's God on his own power. No, he set that aside. He made himself nothing. And we, we don't want to miss this. He, he's, he's only able to do these things because it's the power of the Holy Spirit working in him. It says that then, once he was filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, then Jesus went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. How? For God is with him. The the reason this is so important is because what both Paul and Luke are trying to help us understand this morning is that when Jesus came to earth, one of the things that he came to do is to demonstrate for people to be a living illustration of what is possible for us. If we'll humble ourselves, continually submit ourselves to God to be filled with the Holy Spirit, That's why we sing this song. Whenever I open up my mouth, miracles come breaking out. Why? Because when we live in humility, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, then then Scripture says that we can do the same things that Jesus did. It's not by might. It's not by power. But it's by my what? Spirit. That's why in in John chapter 14, in verse 12, Jesus says these words. He says, I tell you the truth. So Jesus isn't going to lie to you. He says, I tell you the truth, anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done and even greater works because I'm going to the Father. And when I go to the Father, guess what? I'm going to send you the Spirit who is going to fill you and work through you and empower you and enable to to allow you to do greater works. Number three, he, he gave up his eternal riches. When he emptied himself, he gave up his eternal riches. Uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 that he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor. Think about this. Jesus didn't own anything. He didn't. Jesus borrowed everything. I mean, he borrowed a manger to be born in. He borrowed a boat to preach out of. He borrowed a donkey to ride into Jerusalem. He borrowed a tomb to be buried in. Jesus didn't own anything. You know, this is why in John chapter 7, it tells us that they all went to their own homes, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Why? Because he didn't have a home. He didn't own one. And in Matthew chapter 8, when one of the teachers of the law says, Jesus, I'm going to follow you anywhere. And Jesus says this. He says, well, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He he gave up the riches of heaven, and he emptied himself of everything. And in verse 7 it says, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. That, that, that word, very nature, we just saw it a verse ago. In verse 6, it says that being in very nature, he's God. In other words, his essence, he, 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 who he is, he's God. But we're told that he sets that aside, and he makes himself nothing, and he takes on the nature, the essence of a servant. You, you see, what this is saying is that when Jesus said, I stand among you as someone who serves. He wasn't just acting. 
I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't just playing the part. It wasn't, he just wasn't playing like, you know, it's Jesus the, playing the role of a servant for an Academy Award. No. He, he, wasn't, he wasn't just wearing a costume. When he says, hey, I come and I stand among you as someone who serves, he really was a servant. The, the fact of the matter is, that Jesus, he takes the form of a man. In fact, this is what's so crazy. He, he so identified with humanity that people really believed that he really was a man. Right? That, that's why in John chapter 8 and again in John chapter 10, the religious folks wanted to stone him. Why? Because they were like, well, here you are. You're a mere man and you're trying to make yourself equal to God. In other words, his humanity was so evident, it was so real that they actually thought he was a man. So, so Jesus, being in very nature God, he made himself nothing. He took on the nature of a servant. He became human. Oh, this is so cool. Because what this means is that he knows exactly what life is like for you and me. He does. I mean, I mean, he knows what it's like to get your heart broke. He, he knows what it's like to be treated unfair and unjust. He, he knows what it is to be disappointed. He knows what it is to be tired, to be hungry. He knows what it is to be overwhelmed. He, he knows what it is to have people turn on you. He knows what it is to love somebody with all of your heart. And they don't love you back. He, he, he knows what it is. He became like us, taking on the role of a servant. And I'm convinced that, that there is probably no better way that we can have the attitude of Jesus than that is, there is than when we serve. When we, we, we become servants. And so here's what I want to ask you this morning. And don't, don't answer this out loud. I want you to just think about it. It's an important question. Are you a real servant? In other words, what I mean by that is, do you serve simply out of the outflow of who you are? It's your, it's your nature. It's your essence. Or... Honestly, do you just do it when it's convenient for you? Or, or how, how about this? Do, do you just serve for a season? Or because it's your essence, it's your nature, it's just the outflow of who you are, you just, it, it, it's just continually, you just can't help it. I mean, it's, it's, your, it's your nature. I've heard people say this before, and I, I, I'll be honest, I, I, I have difficulty understanding it. But when it comes to serving, I've heard people say, you know, I've done all that. <laughs> you, you know, I, I help with the trunk or treat for the past five years. I've cooked meals for funerals. I've showed up for work days. I've done all that. I put in my time. It's time for somebody else to step up and serve. Well, I agree. It's time for people to step up and serve. But I have to be honest, I, I, I don't understand that statement. You know, like, like nobody told me that when we gave our lives to Jesus, we got this little card that had all these boxes on it. And, and every time we serve, we check the box. And if we check all the boxes, then we've completed our time. We're done. Listen, the kingdom of heaven is not the same as the Social Security Administration. And praise God for that, right? Because it's a mess. I mean, if your, nature is, if your nature is servant, if your essence is servant, how do you stop living out who you are? I mean, how do I stop being Doug? If I'm Doug, how do I stop being Doug? If I'm servant, how do I stop being servant? In fact, one of the many things that I admire about my father, he's not here so I can brag on him this morning, as long as we all promise not to tell, okay? I mean, if there's anybody who's put in their time, it's my dad. He's 77 years old, and he served in pastoral ministry since he was 20. 
I was talking to him the other day, and he was 20. His first church was in Ogallala, and he said, I had no clue what I was doing. He said, I used to go from door to door, knock on the door, and he said, I do magic for people capture their attention, and then talk to them about Jesus. And he said, I was a big kid, and so most of the people that would come into the church were, were teenagers. And he said, I would just, you know, I'd wrestle with them and play basketball with them, and I was just a big kid myself. And, and, and he shared with me, he said the other day, he said, I got a call from a guy, I don't remember his name, but he said, I got a golf call from a guy, and the guy said, man, I just really felt like I was supposed to call you. Um, I, I wanted to let you know that what you did... 50-some years ago mattered. He said, I was one of those kids that you came to my house and knocked on the door and did the magic, and I gave my life to Jesus, and I want you to know today, I'm, I'm still following him. And, and he said, I'm married, and my wife is following him, and we got kids, and they're following him, and we got grandkids, and they're following him, and man, 57 years of pastoral ministry And you all know this, but I think it was like two and a half years ago, he died at a massive heart attack. 23 minutes, he was, his heart had stopped, he was gone. And God miraculously brought him back to life. And, and, and so I think if anybody's paid their dues and has the right to retire, in my mind, it's him. And, and one day he and I were talking about this, and, and here's what he said. He said, I just don't know how to retire from serving Jesus. He said, I mean, how do, you, how do you retire from serving Jesus? And so at 77 years old, guess what he's doing? Well, for one thing, he volunteers as our pastor of care. He leads our second chance ministry. And he, he volunteers. He's on staff. We don't pay him a dime. He does it for free. He, he hadn't been around much for the past couple of months, and he's not going to be around till the end of the year because this morning he's down in Beatrice because our church in Beatrice lost their pastor. They needed somebody to fill in. And my dad said, I'll do it. And so every Sunday, a lot of times on Saturday, I went down with him yesterday on, on Saturday morning, a lot of times on Saturday, he'll drive down to Beatrice and, and this little church of 40, 50 people, he's there and he's pastoring them and he's serving them. You see, that's the essence of a servant. One of my heroes, one of my mentors is Dr. J.K. Warwick. And Dr. Warwick, he served as our general superintendent for a number of years. And he retired a few years ago. I think they make you retire. I can't remember if it's 70 or 75. But they make you retire at that age. He retired and he said, what do I do now? He said, I, I may have to retire from being a GS. But how do I retire from serving Jesus? So I got an email one day along with several other pastors throughout the United States and he said, hey, he said, you know, I've retired from being a GS, but my heart is for the church and my heart is for you guys. So I don't know if this would be a benefit to you, but I'm willing to do it. If once in a while y'all want to get together in Olathe, I'd love to have you guys come and we'll just have this pastoral cohort where we can learn from each other. And I'll try and just share with you all the things that I've learned over, in over 50 years of pastoral ministry. So for the past two years, I've been a benefactor of that. I got an email from him the other day. He quit on us. <laughs> I was kind of disappointed, but the reason he quit was because there was a little church in Ohio that needed a pastor. And J.K. said, well, if they need one, I'll do it. And so here he is. I mean, he has is, he is, he is climbed through the ranks of the, the Nazarene echelon, whatever that is. I mean, he's pastored little churches to, to some of the biggest churches that we have in our denomination. He's been the general superintendent of the Church of the Nazarene. Can't get any higher than that. And what's he doing? He's serving as a pastor as a little church in, in uh, Ohio. You, you see, when you're a servant, how do you not serve? This is the essence of being a servant. It's just what you do. It's not for a season. It's not just when it's convenient to you. But anybody who's a servant, you just serve. You know, if people's feet are dirty, you wash them. Doesn't matter if you're the son of God. That's what Jesus did. The question for each of us is, are we serving? Or are we just selecting? Are we serving or are we selecting? Listen, I can tell you this. If you only do what you feel like doing when you feel like doing it, you're not a servant, you're an actor. 
And and I'm not trying to be unkind. I'm just telling the truth. If you only do what you want to do when you want to do it, the truth is that's just another way of pleasing and serving yourself. When your attitude is like Jesus, you're like, man, I just can't help it. I mean, I just want to serve because I'm just so grateful of how Jesus has served me. And now there's something deep in me that I just want to show other people how much God loves them. And I want to serve because God trusted me. This is so important. When God trusts you enough to reveal to you a need, then maybe the reason he did that is because he trusts you'll do something about it. Otherwise, he would have told somebody else. This is what thinking like Jesus is all about. Number three, this is the last area of Jesus' humility that Paul talks about. It's not just his humility in heaven and in condescending and becoming a man and his humility on earth and the way that he was a servant, but his humility in death. I want you to look at verse eight. It says, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. And became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Can can, can I just suggest this? And I, I think that scripture would support this. But I think the greatest mark of humility has to just simply be obedience no matter what. Obedience no matter the sacrifice. Obedience, no matter the cost. I mean, here's Jesus, and we've already established, you know, he's 100% God, and yet he humbles himself, and he allows mere mortals to hang him on a cross and put him to death. And don't think that just because Jesus was God, what he experienced was somehow easier than it would be for us. And don't think that leading up to this point that it was something that he was looking forward to or just really was excited about. Woohoo! You know, I get to go to the cross and they're going to strip me naked and they're going to beat me and they're going to nail these spikes into my hands and my wrists. If you think that, read what he did at the garden. I mean, if you remember Jesus in the garden, he takes his disciples, he leaves some of them at the gate, he takes Peter, James, and John further in with him, and he says, you know, you guys stay here, and he goes deeper in, and then the gospel of Mark says that he fell to the ground. You know, sometimes I think we have this image in our mind that we need to just forget that he's just calmly, peacefully, you know, leaning up against some rock and praying. No, he is, he is face down in the dirt. He's crying out. And what's his prayer that he prays? He prays, Father, if there's any other way, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. And he prays, we're told, and he anguishes so much that the capillaries in his head burst from the stress at just the thought of being separated from his father, and he begins to sweat drops of blood. I mean, the anxiety is so great. The thought of bearing the weight of your sin and my sin, it just it causes so much anxiety, he recoils at that. The thought that the one who knew no sin would have to carry sin. In fact, Scripture says that he actually became sin. He goes back and he checks on his disciples. They're sleeping. And so he comes back and he goes through the whole process again. It's, it's so bad. There's so much stress, so much pressure that actually Scripture says that angels come and attend to him to, to strengthen him. And he prays, God, if there's any other way, let this cup pass. And he comes back one last time, and, and this is his posture. This is his attitude. He says, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. You see, the truth is that for a lot of us, that would play out a little differently. We say, God, this is what I want, and I don't really know what you want, but nevertheless, not thy will, but my will be done. And whenever that happens, we lose any sense of humility, any sense of 
thinking like Jesus. What is humility? Humility is when you and I say, God, these are the things that I want for my life. I mean, here's my hopes, here's my plans, here's my dreams. Here they all are. It's what I want. But what I want you to know is that what I want more than any of them is I just want what you want. I want whatever you want for my life. In fact, I don't want anything in my life that you don't want. I don't want to do anything. I don't want to go anywhere. I, I just want to do whatever you ask for me to do. And the reality is this, if you really want to measure how close your attitude is to that of Jesus, you don't have to look any further than how committed you are to obedience to him. And if at any time you find yourself saying, well, I know that's not what God wants, but I'm going to do it anyway. Or I know that's what God wants, but that's not what I want. Then you've lost any sense of being like Jesus. Humility is obedience to Christ, regardless of the cost, even if it means death on the cross. I mean, you think about this. Here is the Son of God. And you talk about humility. The, the scene, you know, he's naked, he's been stripped naked. He's got men and women seeing him like this. He's in this vulnerable state. People are mocking him. People are spitting on him. He's bearing the weight of, of sin, yours and mine. And he does it because the Father says, this is what has to happen. You see, obedience is doing God's will even when you don't want to. And humility is saying, not my will, but your will be done. This is having the same attitude of Christ. But I want you to watch what happens here as Paul wraps this up in verse nine. He says, therefore, because Jesus didn't consider him, even though he was God, he didn't consider himself being equal to God. And, and even though he was God, he took on the role of a servant. It says, therefore, because of all of that, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above all names. What is the name that is above every other name? Jesus, yeah. That, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That means every knee in heaven and on earth and in hell. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And what I love about this is that in these seven short verses, Paul has taken us full circle. He says, you know what? Jesus is God. He came from the highest place. He, he willingly humbled himself. He made himself nothing and went down to the lowest place. And then because he, he was so willing to be obedient and he occupied the lowest position whose only priority was obedience to the Father, obedience unto death, what happens? God exalts him back to the highest place. He gives him a name that is above every other name. And I see that, and I have to wonder, why did he have to go from here to here to here? Why did he do that? I believe with all my heart, he did it so he could set an example of what the outcome will be for anybody who's willing to follow his example. To have the same attitude that he had, and humble themselves under the mighty hand of God. In 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter says that anybody who's willing to humble themselves before God, eventually, at the right time, will be exalted. And Jesus is our example. The King of glory took on the form of a man. He, he humbled himself to the point of death, and therefore God has highly exalted him. He is King, he is God, he is Savior. And guess what? You and I, we get to choose. Either we can acknowledge him as God, as king, as savior now, in this moment, or I promise you there will come a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
And I don't know about you, but I just assume do it now. And so here's what I want to do. We wrap things up. Brian, if you'd come and just play something really soft, and we're not going to take a long time with this. Just, I just want to give you an opportunity. I don't think I can preach a message like this and come to a conclusion like this without giving you an opportunity to do what we just talked about. And there may be somebody who's here this morning, maybe somebody who's watching online, and you have never taken that step of faith and said, you know what, Jesus, I want to declare you as Lord. I want to declare you as my Lord. I want, I'm going to humbly bow before you now, confess that I'm a sinner, confess that I believe that you are who you say you are when you say you're God, and I want to humble myself and give my life to you. I'm telling you, there's no better time to do it than right now. One day, there will come a day when all of us will make that confession that Jesus is Lord. And so I want to give you an opportunity now with every head in here bowed and every eye closed. If that's you, I just want you to Just pray this prayer in the quietness of your heart. Dear Jesus, this morning I recognize that I need you. That I I declare for myself that you really are who you said you were, that you are God. Incarnate, come and experience all of the highs and the lows, the yuck and the filth of humanity you never committed a sin because you were so in step with the Holy Spirit that even in your humanity you operated in in the power of the Holy Spirit and yet you bore all the sins of the world on the cross you were crucified you were buried but you didn't stay dead (laughs) because you're God you rose from the grave three days later and you were exalted into the highest place uh, given a name that is above every name today I recognize who you are and I confess I know who I am I'm a sinner I've blown it I've lived for myself and it hasn't worked out and so I confess that and I give my life to you I ask that you would be my king. I declare you as that today. My king, my lord, my savior. And I commit from this day forward to live my life for you. So I give myself to you in Jesus' name. And for those of us this morning, Father, who have already given our lives to you today, we just reaffirm our declaration today. Jesus, you are Lord. Jesus, you are sovereign. Jesus, you are king. Jesus, you are savior. And and Jesus, I just want to do this publicly. I recommit myself to you. I want to be your servant, and I want to serve like like you served. I, I don't want to get wrapped up in worrying about pecking orders or who gets credit for what or Who's supposed to serve who? I I just want to have your attitude, Jesus. And I just believe that there's a whole bunch of other people in this place and those who are watching online that they want the same thing. And we recognize today that we can't even do that on our own. We need Holy Spirit for you to fill us and empower us and enable us to live that out. And so let it be so. Let it be so. Let us, if we're going to fight over anything, let us fight over the bowl and the towel. Let us just be running to serve. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you, and we praise you in your name. Amen.